It's time for Making It Personal, a personalized SC podcast brought to you by the South Carolina Department of Education's personalized learning team. Let's jump into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Making It Personal podcast. I am your host, Carrie Beach, and today I am joined by some very special guests from the personalized learning team. Today, we are joined by Kristen Logan and Dr. Sarah Bowie. Ladies, for those who have not been introduced, I'm going to give you a moment to just introduce yourselves, and then we'll jump into the conversation. Sarah, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Sure. I'm Sarah, and I'm um, the regional coach for the Upstate of South Carolina um, from the Personalized Learning Team. And I am Kristen Logan. I am the Personalized Learning Coach for the Midlands area of the state of South Carolina. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad to have you ladies on our podcast, and we're going to actually be jumping into a conversation as a continuation of our Flexibility Within Fences series. And today we're going to be tackling um, the topic of finding flexibility with assessing and grading. We'll also be taking some frequently asked questions from the field as well. So let's jump into it. Sometimes when people think about assessing and grading, they loop them all in the same bucket and think that they are one in the same. What would be your response to that? So we talk about what the word assessment actually means and where it comes from. And it actually comes from the Latin word "assidere," which means to sit beside. And so when we're talking about assessing, we're thinking of it more as a conversation between the learner and the educator. And so gathering information, observing, learning more about that student and that student learning more about themselves as well within that context is the assessing part of it. And then what happens a lot of the times is that part gets immediately interwoven with grading, which is more around reporting and uh, communicating those results to whether it's the student or the student's family, or even, you know, when we have to report um, grades to state educational agencies and things like that. So keeping in mind that the assessment part is more of let's gather this information and sort through it and analyze it and talk about it, while the grading is more around how are we going to communicate that. Thank you so much for that breakdown. There are a lot of beliefs out there around um, assessing and its purpose, but from a student-centered lens, what would you say is the main purpose of assessing? So I'm going to piggyback off of what Sarah was talking about. And so from a student-centered lens, we would say that the purpose of assessing is to provide feedback for both students and teachers about how each student is progressing in their learning and to inform next steps. Um, In Catlin Tucker and Katie Novak's book, The Shift is Student-Led, they talk about how many formative assessments are thought of as events, uh, like giving a quiz or having a discussion instead of it being more of a part of an ongoing process. So when formative assessments are seen as a process of student reflection, self-assessment, feedback, action planning, students actually are able to build more ownership of their own learning process. So in short, we would want educators to think beyond just using assessments as a way to measure, but also as a way to give feedback to students and and allow for those um, informed next steps. As Tucker and Novak said, since we're in the business of learning, we should put students and learning at the center. 
I love that. And so when we're talking about measuring, because you mentioned that just now, um, as educators, we are trained in that formative and summative assessment lens where we capture a whole lot of information. But what is it that we really should be measuring or what should our students be measuring when it comes to formative, summative assessments in general? So I think before answering this question, I, I say to schools and districts with whom I work that what we measure, whether we mean to or not, it is a direct form of communication of what we value. So when we're thinking about, well, what should we be measuring, that that word should I think needs to transform into a word or wording of what do we value? Hmm. So when we're looking at typically what we're measuring are, okay, well, how well are students mastering standards and really focusing on that world-class knowledge piece of the profile of the South Carolina graduate, you know, which is codified into law. And it is the promise that we are making that students will be college career and military ready. But that world-class knowledge piece is just one part of that promise. So if we're measuring how well students are showing mastery of these rigorous standards in language arts, math, science, you know, social studies, what are we also measuring when it comes to the other two components of the profile? Are we measuring how well students can think critically? can problem solve, can communicate clearly? Um, are we helping them measure their perseverance and their work ethic? All of which are parts of the world-class skills and the life and career characteristics of the profile. So I think when we talk about the word should be measuring, we need to go back to as a school, as a district, as a community, what do we value and what we are going to provide for students to get them ready for college, career, and military? And then that should translate into what we are measuring. I think that's an interesting perspective to shift from, um, you know, just looking at things as they are to really honing in on what we actually value. So thank you for sharing that. Now, besides just taking an assessment, what role should students have with assessing, if any? They should definitely have a big role in assessment. Um, I'm going to bring up Catlin Tucker and Katie Novak again because they talk about how too often assessments seem like we're collecting data about students and not for them. Students should play a, a giant role in the assessment process. In addition to being the ones who take the assessment, students should be able to look at their assessment, whether it's a pre-assessment or a formative or a summative, and be able to articulate what it is that they're doing well and what they still need to work on. And it's more than just them knowing what their grade is. It's knowing which skills are their strengths, which are their areas of growth. And in order to do this, um, I usually think about a couple of things that need to happen. So for example, one, we need to allow time for reflection after an assessment has been graded by their teacher. Educators can model what it looks and sounds like to reflect on those assessments since that may not be something that students are used to. And this will help uncover those hidden thinking processes when you reflect. The second thing we need to do is make assessments more transparent for students. Educators can do this by identifying and labeling each question or set of questions with the corresponding learning targets written in student-friendly language using I can statements. And by doing this, students will have a better understanding of what they're being asked to demonstrate. And I would also add, if possible, when returning graded assignments, I would actually recommend not putting a grade on it at the top. Um, just have the questions or prompts marked wrong if they happen to be wrong. And you, of course, can put your grade in your grade book. 
then students can look at their assessment to be able to identify what they did well and not and, and what they need to work on and not be distracted by their grades. And a great example of this is in a video called Highlighting Mistakes, a Grading Strategy. So that would be my recommendation if you're thinking about how to get students to become more of a part of this process. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing those tangible tips. And we'll be sure to link that video that you mentioned in the description box of this episode should our listeners want to check it out. There are a lot of thoughts and feelings and beliefs about grades and their impact on students. So kind of similar to my opening question around assessing, what would you say is the core purpose of grading when we're looking at it from a student-centered lens? When we think about grading, you're right, lots of thoughts, feelings, and beliefs about it. And I think it's important to remember the reason why. Grading is for a lot of teachers, their last island of autonomy that they have in the classroom, especially in today's day and age, where they feel like this is the one thing, well, I may have guidelines from my district or from my school about, you know, how many grades to put in. No one is going to be over my shoulder telling me how to grade. So that's why usually when we start talking about grading, lots of feelings um, rise up in teachers and rightfully so, because it, it is that um, last you know, feeling of this is something I have ownership and control over. But when we think about it from a student-centered lens, the core purpose of grading should be to provide an accurate and a reliable view of how a student is progressing. And not only in, like we said before, the standards, right, the knowledge they have, but also in those super important skills that we say students need to graduate with. So when we're looking at those words in that description, accurate, reliable, progress, mastering, there's a lot in there to unpack. Um, When you think about something accurate, accurate grading relies on, let's look at a student's academic level of performance or skill level of, of performance. And if I am going to grade you on how well you are mastering standards in math, then I'm not going to provide extra credit for you bringing in canned foods for the canned food drive, which is something that I experienced myself as a student. I would get extra credit for that. So thinking about accuracy, where it truly is a reflection of how that student is progressing. Um, Another part of that accuracy piece can be talking about averaging grades, which is something I did in the classroom. Lots of people do in the classroom. Um, And thinking about how accurate is that if a student's grades are all averaged together over a period of time and that the same, the grade that they get at the beginning when they're first learning this knowledge and making mistakes is the the same kind of uh, treatment, the same level as their final grade after they've gone through all those failing mistakes and they may have really mastered the material. So is that average an accurate representation of where they are? So really thinking about about that. And then that reliable piece, you know, reliability in research means that if I do this in different contexts with different people, I'm going to get the same results. So if I'm an ELA teacher and I have an ELA teacher partner across the hall or in another school, is the way we're grading reliable? And that are we holding students to the same kinds of standards? Well, it doesn't have to be cookie cutter from school to school or teacher to teacher. There should be some foundational things we agree on where reliably a student can feel like, yes, I understand how I am being graded in this content. And then the last part of that core purpose of grading and the mastering skills and standards is thinking about that mastery piece. Are we really measuring in our grading and communicating in our grading 
how students are working towards mastery, where we're not uh, just happy with them barely getting by and moving on to the next grade level or content area. Are they actually mastering uh, either skills or standards? And that is what I would say is the core purpose of grading. Thank you so much for that explanation. Now I'm going to kind of jump ahead um, based on a comment that you made around the canned goods, because, you know, we've all in education been guilty of giving a little bit of extra credit because we think that, you know, extra credit and other things that can boost a grade are motivating to students. What would you say when you hear um, an educator link grades with motivation? I think that Joe Feldman's book, Grading for Equity, provides a really strong answer for this. And I look at it a lot because we hear that that comment a lot, that grades are a commodity. They are in like almost a market system where it provides the motivation that we think that kiddos need. Um, and so Joe in his book mentions this quote and it's, it's powerful and it's not afraid to pull a punch. Five-year-old children don't come to school looking for points even those who may know their numbers, which means that if we believe that our older students, middle and high school students are motivated extrinsically by grades, it is because we have taught them to be. And so the the system of education, not of learning, but of education, typically teaches children that they have to be motivated by grades and that learning itself is not its own reward. And so there's this illusion of engagement and motivation in these point systems. We make this assumption that students aren't going to join us in our classroom activities. They're not going to invest in their learning. They they won't even see the joy and value in learning unless we explicitly reward them with points and with grades. So the challenge is to detach ourselves as teachers from that idea and instead try to influence kiddos seeing academic success, not as like, this is something you are getting points for, but more around how can we look at this as a goal, mastery, performance, like what would they think about when they're trying to practice basketball or make friends? You know, how can we motivate it as this is a goal we are pursuing and you're moving forward in it and growth instead of you did this thing, here is this reward. Um, so there's a lot to unpack in the idea of motivation. So it's not a very simple answer, but it does take some dismantling of value systems that we hold as teachers because that is the way that we were motivated in school. So being able to detach from that and to try something new and trusting, trusting that kids, once exposed to it for long enough and enriching ways, will find learning as its own reward. Thank you so much for that breakdown and that explanation. And let's also get into some other questions from the field that we get a lot around grading. Let's talk about retesting. What makes retesting student-centered? Why is retesting important? And what would you say to folks who may say, or folks who may worry that retesting doesn't prepare students for the real world where there are real consequences. I'm using air quotations because those are things that I've heard. Kristen, what do you think about that? Yeah, we get this question a lot. Uh, Retakes are definitely an important part of student-centered learning. And one of the resources Sarah already mentioned, Joe Feldman's Grading for Equity is one of our go-to books. 
because he talks about why this is a, a practice that should be used and the fact that learning depends on mistakes, but only when there's a process to review those mistakes and then an opportunity to correct them. And since we know that not all students are at the same level of learning in a given classroom, it's to be expected that some students may not be ready to demonstrate the learning a teacher's asking them to demonstrate on that particular day of the assessment. And so knowing that this is just a natural part of a diverse learning community, we need to provide multiple opportunities for students to demonstrate their learning. The student who could not demonstrate a skill in the first quarter may be able to demonstrate it by the third quarter because their learning needs were met through scaffolded learning experiences. And you may be thinking, well, this sounds great, but it takes a lot of time. Like, how do we make that, how do we make that happen? And it depends on how you administer your retakes. Um, some questions you might consider are like, do you really need to have a student retake the whole entire assessment? Or could they just retake a small portion or, or the portions of the assessment that they've newly mastered? For other ideas around retakes, you should definitely check out Chapter 11, Practices That Support Hope and a Growth Mindset in Joe Feldman's book for Grading for Equity. Thank you so much for those tidbits on retesting, um, because like you just said, that that's a really good a really important part of the feedback cycle for students to really have a transparent view of where they are in their learning. Here, can I add something to that? Because I think sure. this is a good thing to add too, is that a lot of times teachers will say, well, retesting shows kids it's easy, right? All they have to do is just retake the test. Well, it's mm -hmm. not that. And Joe does a good job of this. Rick Vermelli, W-O-R-M-E-L-I, does a great job with this too. He shows forms, like we're not talking two or three questions, link like a page long form that students have to fill out before they even try to retest. What have you done in order to show that you have relearned the material? Why do you want to retest? What is your goal? It shows that there's even more work that goes into retesting than, than even the first attempt, right? So I think that for teachers that I've shown that to, it's been a, a game changer of like, oh, no, retesting isn't easier on the student, you know, much, much less for the teacher. It's not easy to go through this form and really think about my thinking and the reason why I'm going to retest. So yeah, his examples of uh, re retest, I think he even calls them like permission forms, like the student has to ask for permission to retest and really show the evidence um, are a really great resource for teachers too. And the question that you asked about, like how it, you know, doesn't prepare them for the real world. The other thing I would add is um, in that in that same chapter, um, Joe Feldman gives real world examples where as adults or as, you know, young adults, we get multiple retakes on different things, such as our driving test. How many of us would not be drivers if we didn't pass the first time, right? You, you okay, if you don't pass, you go back to Sarah's point, there's extra work in there, right? I'm going to go get some extra hours of practice. I'm going to get some feedback from somebody. Then I'm going to sign up for a retake, right? Same thing with the bar exam when you're going in, you know, to try and, you know, pass and become a lawyer and all these other different real life experiences where it's not a one and done. Um, a lot of times, even in, you know, like when we think about, you know, business world, there's conversations that you can have in terms of, um, you know, a lot of times we hear about deadlines. Well, deadlines are there for a reason, but a lot of times you can you can negotiate things so that you can get a quote, you know, like you said, air quotes, you can get a retake or get some more time to, to be able to master what you were trying to master. All good examples. Um, and to piggyback on that, Kristen, I think about also how like Sometimes as human beings, as professionals, we don't always get it right on every lesson that we present. 
That's not a one and done. We can reflect and shift courses based on whatever it is that we need to do. So great things about uh, retesting and, and why that's important and why it actually does prepare students for the real world. Now, another question that we often get from the field is, how do I actually go about personalizing learning while still having to grade? Um, Oftentimes, when we're introducing people to this idea of student-centered learning and shifting from a traditional one-size-fits-all type of environment where it's only lecture-style, quiz on Fridays, you know, everybody in lockstep, um, we get the question around, like, how do I do this while still having to grade, essentially? I always answer this question with nothing has to change with your grading. And that usually helps um, you know, some teachers who are feeling you know nervous or anxious around it because, and, and quite honestly, nothing does have to change with your grading, not in the beginning. You can still work on personalizing experiences for kiddos and in, uh, infusing more student ownership within your learning experiences and your grading can be exactly the same. What's going to eventually organically happen is you are going to see that your grading practices more than likely need some subtle shifts to match the instruction that you are now providing for students and the learning experiences they're having. So again, I don't view that as an overhaul of their entire grading scale. What I view it as is a a way to enhance the grades that you are sending home. Because remember, grading is the, the communication piece. So we have several teachers who... Um, their grading doesn't change, still grading the same way, but students are able to explain those grades a lot more clearly to their families at home. And not just, I got an 82. Mm. This is the standard I struggled with. This is what I plan on doing on my next attempt. Or, uh, you know, me and Miss Bowie are going to work on this next week. And I'm going to really focus on this indicator because this is why I got this wrong. And so that transparency, that personalized learning really lends itself to between teacher and student, then ends up translating between student and, and families of being able to say, okay, here's this grade that's communicated to you. What does it mean outside of just a B or a B plus? Um, so I don't feel like grading has to change, quite honestly, but it can be enhanced. And, and typically that makes everyone involved happier. Now, let me follow back up with you on that question and ask, OK, how could a teacher personalize learning if their school or district is requiring them to put a certain number of grades in the grade book? This is also a question that we've gotten from the field. How would you respond yeah. to that, Sarah? I still feel like it's the same. And, and what I've what I've um, answered teachers with with that is um, first, let's let's make sure we do a little validity check. Are you sure your school is requiring you to put in that certain number of grades? And if you're sure of that, can you ask them why? Sometimes there are some uh, misconceptions like, well, we thought this the district policy or the state policy was this, when in reality it's not. So doing a little fact-finding first, super important. And then if it is that that's the case, this is the number of grades you have to have, those grades can still be informed by what your personalized learning practices are. So maybe I need to have four major grades and four minor grades for a certain amount of time. I still get to decide what those learning experiences look like for kiddos. And I still get to decide how they are communicated to parents with some enrichment from what I'm using within my personalized learning classroom. Awesome. Um, Kristen, I'll kick this question to you. How can teachers best navigate district mandated 
grading policies, which kind of is in the same vein of that question. What are some workarounds um, for teachers if it's a certain number of grades that need to be in the gradebook or other grading policies in terms of weights and things like that? Yeah, so I'm going to reiterate some of the same things Sarah just said, just about the fact that, um, you know, since this podcast is, is a part of the series on finding flexibility within fences, right? I'm going to answer it from, from that lens. And there are lots of things in, as Sarah just mentioned, in our current grading system that are not in our control. And we might consider those things our fences, at least temporarily. And so, for example, you like we just said, you might have to put a certain number of grades in your gradebook per quarter or semester. Um, but we do have things in our control. And the good news is, as Sarah mentioned, you get to decide what those things are, right? And we know that it's not best to grade every single solitary thing that we ask students to do. But that being said, just being really thoughtful around what some of those critical formative milestones um, would be that would represent kind of a snapshot in, in the, the each child's performance and putting that into your grade book. And those would be, you know, good checkpoints to see where they are. So we do have control over um, what we're putting in, like Sarah said. And she also mentioned something earlier in our conversation about value. We're not asking you, you know, whether you can or can't change the number of grades um, in your grade book. We're not necessarily asking you to specifically do that especially if you're not in control of it. However, um, we are asking that you examine the value of, of those grades that you're giving, right? Just really think through, like, is it really something that dem show, demonstrates what my students can do? Or is this maybe something, A, that I don't grade, or B, that I need to kind of adapt so that it is something um, we truly value? And the last thing I would maybe say around this specific question, um, and this is Again, right up what what Sarah was mentioning. Um, if you you know if you don't feel like that the grading policies are within your sphere of influence, like Sarah said, find out whose sphere it is in um, and ask them some questions. Maybe no one has asked them in a while, and maybe this is will spark a conversation to find out what can be changed. Um, you know, within within the fences that everybody is confined to. Thank you so much for giving those tips and tricks. To kind of wrap things up, can you share with our listeners what resources or supports might be most helpful as educators are navigating finding flexibility within the fences of assessing and grading? So two books that both of us have <laughs> mentioned, um, the Catlin Tucker and Katie Novak's The Shift to Student-Led is one that is definitely one that would um, be good to lean on, as well as Joe Feldman's Grading for Equity. In addition to those two books, we always encourage SC educators to connect with our team through our free, yes, free professional development that's available both in person and online in a self-paced structure. And we have something for everyone. So you can be in the beginning of your journey or you can be somewhere along that road to student-centered learning. And if you're not sure what is the right fit, just reach out and ask and we'll be happy to support you with that. Sarah, what advice would you give educators who are wanting to learn more about a student-centered approach to assessing and grading? Or um, as Kristen just mentioned, if they're interested in getting started on um, more of a student-centered lens within their classrooms, schools, and districts? So I would um, echo what Kristen said around our PD options. We have all you know, so many different entry points for educators, no matter where you are on the journey. Um, but the personal piece of advice that I would give, similar to what we talked about before, assessing and grading is a very sensitive topic. So if whether you are the teacher who is thinking about, hmm, maybe I want to try something different, or if you're the leader who's saying, hmm, maybe I want them to try something different, 
to approach it with sensitivity and patience and know that even just the smallest little steps, even if it doesn't feel like you're making these massively huge changes, like you're not throwing the A through F grading scale out the window, that they still matter and they make a difference for students and for families. And that's really where our focus is. So don't be afraid to handle it gently and carefully and take very small steps within it. Awesome. Well, thank you, ladies, so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I hope that our listeners have too. And I will leave um, your contact information um, in our website information below, just in case anyone wants to reach out or see what PD options might be a best fit for them. So thank you, ladies, so much again for um, chatting with me. We'll be right back to close things out. Thanks again for tuning in to today's episode of Making It Personal. Connect with the personalized learning team by visiting our website, personalizedsc.ed.sc.gov. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, share with a friend, and tune in for a new episode every month. We'll catch you next time on Making It Personal. See ya!